1: Good afternoon. This is SOGCast number nine. My name is John Stryker Meyer. I'll be your host today. Thank you for joining us. And in the previous SOGCasts, we've had uh, members that have run recon missions. We've had helicopter pilots. We've had people that talked about different aspects of the war, the sequel war, the eight-year sequel war in MACV SOG. One of the aspects we haven't talked about is the air support specifically from what we called FAC or Covey or NAILS. And that is the Air Force with a Green Beret in a helicopter or in an aircraft that coordinated with the teams on the ground and the assets that would be called in to support them on missions. And today I'm pleased to announce that we have Mike Taylor with us today who had three and a half years in one tour of duty in Southeast Asia, with Special Forces. And the main reason, the first reason, of many stories he has, we want to talk about some of the many missions that you flew, over 300 missions, as a, we, we used to call them the Covey Rider. And and and, and uh, we should also explain that we had assets that were flown in Laos that were launched from South Vietnam that supported the secret war, but we also had the secret part of the secret war in NKP. And uh, um, you could talk a little bit about, start about NKP, and then let's just get into a couple of your more extraordinary missions that you had run as a cubby rider in launching out of NKP.
2: Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm uh, very happy to be here, Uh, particularly to talk about Nakan Indeed, NKP. I wish I had violated security all those years and kept a journal or notes, because that would be a, a good story to get out to the public. That's all of our wishes, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I didn't, unlike you and uh, John Plaster and people who obviously kept notes who were writing these wonderful books. I did a lot of interviews. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Phanom, Thailand, is a uh, Royal Thai Air Force Base located in the northeast corner of Thailand, right on the Mekong River. So as close to the Prairie Fire area of operations as you could get in Thailand. And the reason it was important to operate out of there, there's two monsoon seasons that are separated by the Annamite Mountains that run down through Laos. Right. So uh, when it was a northeast monsoon... Phu Bai and Quang Tri and most of the typical launch sites in Vietnam, the weather would be unworkable. But the weather in the area of operations and uh, to the west over to Thailand was workable. So I don't know what year, uh, mid-60s to later 60s, uh, they got permission most of the Royal Thai Air Force bases were totally consumed by the U.S. Air Force. We occupied their bases and operated out of there. It looked like a U.S. base, but it was a Thai base. And we got permission to establish a launch site, as they were called, at NKP. So we had a uh, small, secure compound within the larger air base uh, with a shaped building, um We controlled access into the uh, cyclone fence, nobody could get in unless we said okay. And then once you got in, you could only see the the front two legs of the H and the crossbar, and that was our living quarters and the supply room and the bar and the mess hall. But then if you drove around back and went into the upper arms of the H, uh, that was the tactical operations center and the isolation area for the teams. I remember it quite well. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Spent a little time there.
2: <laughs> yeah. So we had a 13-man uh, Special Forces detachment there, commanded by a major, two captains, 10 enlisted guys, an ops guy, an intel guy. And we called them a FAC rider. Ford Air Controllers would go out and support the teams, and we would put an experienced recon man in the back seat And we called them fact Rider. Their call sign in Vietnam was Covey. So everybody in Vietnam, and I'm sure all day this morning, you'll be saying (laughs) Covey Rider. And that's fine. We don't take any offense. But the Coveys was the call sign for the 20th Tactical Air Support Squadron out of Vietnam. We were supported by the 23rd Tactical Air Support Squadron NAIL call sign. But right. we we weren't nail riders, we were FAC riders. Indeed. Yeah. So um, we had huge, giant Air Force helicopters to transport the teams, as opposed to the King Bees and Hueys that they had in Vietnam. And uh, helicopter gunships and Cobras and so forth didn't have the legs, so we were, thank God, <laughs> escorted by the A-1E Sky Raiders A uh, World War II vintage, you could say. They came out at the end of World War II. They didn't participate in World War II, but that was their vintage. Uh, They made their name in uh, Korea, but they really made their name for us. Indeed. They uh, could carry their own weight in ordnance. Sure. They could stay forever. They could fly... So slow, you could knock them out of there with a fly swatter. But what that meant was they were deadly accurate. When you were trying to use F-4s or something like that, you couldn't drop close to the team unless they were ready to die and say, drop it on me. Right. But uh, the enemy had a tactic. When the tactical air support showed up, they call it getting close to the belt. They wanted to nestle up to that team so they couldn't get bombed. Well, when the A1s were there, the SPADs, you could nestle up to my belt and they could still bomb you. <laughs> and that hit me. <laughs> yeah. So um, every day we got uh, two Ford Air controllers that uh, could uh, regenerate the first sortie that went out. So that guy would fly the first and the third sortie and the second guy would take one in the middle And that way we could cover the teams all daylight hours. And uh, we had one guy on the team that was a fact writer. That was his position. And he would fly the first and the third. And then uh, usually I would take the second one, but there were other guys, Gary Robb, and other people that wanted to fly as well, so I would let them them fly sometime (laughs) if it was a boring day. Indeed. Um, And um, then, When I first got there, we had the CH-3 Air Force helicopter, which was called the Jolly Green Giant, but it was old and weak. And uh, we were operating at such uh, elevations and in such heat, even if we had a six-man recon team fully combat loaded, only three could be carried by a CH-3. So you'd have to split the team which is not good uh, tactics, no. and do two insertions uh, with the CH-3. The Super Jolly Green replaced the CH-3, the CH-53. The
1: Delta models.
2: Oh, uh, What a improvement in our lives. I don't know how many of our people they could carry, because we never accumulated that many folks. Well, yeah. yeah,
1: with Operation Tailwind, they had over 50 men. Yeah. And equipment. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yeah,
2: and uh, the A1s never changed, but when I got there, we had the O2, the Skymaster or something like that. Right. It's a push-pull airplane. Cessna. It had a, a small pro- Cessna. a propeller in the front and a propeller in the back, and uh, <laughs> it was really no good for our operation because the pilot and the FAC rider sat side by side. So, the uh, pilot could bank to the left and look down for the landing zone or the enemy or whatever he's looking at. But then to show the fact rider, he'd have to circle back to the right and try to describe what he's talking about. And right. the other guy would look and no good.
1: So, finally, OV 10s. OV
2: OV-10, 10, North American Rockwell Bronco. Fast, strong. Uh, The pilot sits in the front and the fact writer in the back. You both look out the left, you both look out the right, you see the same thing and talk about it. Um,
1: And they could carry ordnance, too. When I got
2: there, they had two rocket pods, seven missiles each. And they said, okay, these are facts. They're marking targets. Uh, We'll put 28 white phosphorus marking rounds in there. (laughs) Well, we never used all of them. Right. And we had four 7.62 machine guns with zero ammunition. (laughs) So I set out to try to uh, trade in 14 of the WP missiles for 14 high-explosive missiles and arm the machine guns. And we had a guy we called the Emperor of Laos. It was Ambassador William Sullivan, U.S. Ambassador to Laos, who was SOG's worst enemy. Indeed, throughout the entire secret war. Worse than NVA. Anything he could do to handcuff us and cripple us, he did. So I would run up uh, this uh, proposal and get slapped down by Sullivan. So I enlisted uh, the world's greatest air commando, Heine Adderholt. Who
1: had vast experience from World War II, Korea, and then he was a, a stud with the secret war in terms of getting assets for of the recon. He was
2: running the secret war from the air yes, aspect absolutely. in Laos to include uh, the CIA programs with the Hmong and General, uh, whatever his name was, Bang Pao. Indeed. Um, anyway, I said, Heine, go see the ambassador with me. And you talk about an arrogant SOB. I hope you're out there listening, you bastard. (laughs) Um, But he couldn't say no to Heine. So we turned into instant air support. They didn't want to make the ordinance change because they knew what the facts would do. If the team got in trouble and the A1s weren't there and we are waiting for somebody
1: to show up... I can personally attest to that because when we were in layoffs, we had launched out of NKP. And uh, two days later... We made contact, and it was a fact that came out, OV-10. It was the first time I've ever seen one, yeah. let alone used one. And I said, hey, can you get some air assets? He goes, I got some rockets. <laughs> <laughs> and we were so happy to hear that. He, he came in and made gun runs, and we never had Covey or a FAC or anybody do gun runs like that. So that right. was really vintage stuff. It was a step in the right direction.
2: No, it, it was immediate, and it was terrific, and I've uh, kind of lost my train of thought where I was going. Well, here's,
1: here's the key thing on this. Yeah. Let's get back to the reason why you did that was because as a fact rider, you wanted to see and help the teams on the ground any way you could, and uh, let's just talk about some of the two more historic missions that you were on.
2: Okay, uh, but before you go, let me explain Please. how we worked. Uh, you have a whole communication suite in the ob ten. So I could talk, or the FAC writer could talk, right. to the team on an FM radio. Right. And then I would tell the FAC over the intercom what was going on, what was he needed. And then he had UHF and VHF to deal with the air assets. And uh, we would come up to the Airborne Command and Control Center. In the daytime, is was Hillsboro. At night, it was Moonbeam. And if there was a prairie fire emergency declared, every airframe in the sky came to us. And so uh, the FAC would then work the air support. The A1s would bring the helicopters out, hover nearby, or the A1s would participate in this suppression, and when it was ready, bring them in. The teams were uh, briefed and prepared in Vietnam. And then they flew over to us <laughs> on the blackbirds, the Special Ops C-130s. Indeed. And uh, we had one of these, uh, we call them bread trucks. It's a shop van that runs around airfields Black. everywhere. Blue.
1: Well, that one was blue and they had the curtains inside.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> they had curtains inside
2: and also uh, duct tape over the windows. Right. Because that thing would back up into a C-130 perfectly up the ramp. And then you open the back doors, and that was a further screen. Indeed. Put the teams that looked like Terry and the Pirates in the back. Or Recon Team Idaho back in 1970, yeah. And drive (laughs) drive them around to that back isolation area and and ready to go. Nobody. Great
1: hospitality, treated really great there by the staff. Of course, Major uh, Bill Shelton was the OIC there in 70 for how many years? How long was he the uh, officer in charge?
2: Um. Bill left in 71.
1: Uh, yeah. And he had, after he closed FOB-1, then he went to NKP. Yeah. And uh, he had vast experience as the XO. He was a temporary CO for the closing of FOB-1. Yeah. And he was just a natural yeah. over there because he had to be diplomatic, working with all the Air Force people, and a knucklehead from the State Department, I assume. And meanwhile, deal with the recon teams when they came in. Yeah. Help for the mission, the briefings, et cetera. Yeah. He Great was guy. perfect. Yes, sir. So on um, June thirtieth, uh, fact rider Al Maziello goes out on a just a visual reconnaissance, a VR, which ordinarily is just go fly over target, look for some LZs, and then have a team or another recon team, his team or another team, go in. And so was he. That day was he official fact rider preparing he, for another team that's going to launch.
2: Yeah, he was the principal fact rider on the launch team at NKP. That was his full-time job. Right. And he went out uh, in an OV-10 with a very experienced, terrific uh, forward air controller. uh, The pilot? Bungalow Bill Sanders. (laughs) And uh, they descended. We were allowed to fly below their uh, routine minimum altitude that most facts were required to keep and they went down to photograph something and a uh, rocket or a missile of some sort hit the side of the aircraft right where Bill sits
1: so killed him instantly yeah and then Al had to punch out literally punch out of the OV-10
2: Al uh, tried and tried to call him over the intercom nothing and it got to where
1: it's a matter of survival for Al. He had to go. A hard decision to make. There for
2: was him. a uh, pull handle between the knees of the pilot and the FAC rider. If the pilot punched out, the FAC rider went first and then he went. If the FAC rider punched out, only he went. And that's when Al went. Right. Uh, he lost his only weapon. We just flew with a pistol, it was gone, <laughs> injured his back, and landed on ant anthill of. Plenty of people. Of NVA in Laos. Yeah. Deep in Laos. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he had his, uh, what was it, ERC 64? Was that? Well, some, some sort of a ERC.
1: Either ERC 10 or 664 Yeah. He had, had both by that time.
2: He had a personal survival radio that came up on the uh, what they call the guard frequency. Every aircraft monitored the guard frequency. So when you turn it on, it comes up, whoop, whoop, whoop. They call it a beeper. Yeah. And then everybody else in the air would say, beeper, beeper, come up, voice. And then they wanted to get you off a of guard so other people would have that emergency frequency. So uh, I was out in the second sortie that day. Al was toward the end of his, and, and we were out. So people start telling him, beeper, beeper, get off uh, guard. He said, the only radio I have is on guard. I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) Uh, He turned the beeper off. Oh, yeah. Um, He knew about where they were and uh, gave us a a good enough location that we went over there and found him. And so um, the A-1 pilots who flew for us, when they became very good and very experienced, They were taken into the Sandy program. They might be flying for us that day, and the next day they'd be sitting strip alert as a Sandy
1: for search air rescue,
2: search and uh, rescue missions. Sandy Low Lead Sandy One was the boss of the SAR. Okay, he told everybody what to do, (laughs) but he would have about uh, four A ones in his group. Sandy's one through four. And uh, they would come out and link up with the Jolly Green Giant uh, Rescue Helicopters, whose motto is... uh,
1: That Others May Live. That Others May Live. Just an incredible motto. And it's on the front of their aircraft at that time. And and, uh, so go go on to the story where the first Jolly Green, Jolly Green 54, an HH-53 Charlie model was out to rescue them, to
2: look for Al, yeah. try to pick them up. So uh, we had found Al, and uh, we vectored the Sandys in, and the Sandys were uh, using the A-1s to suppress uh, enemy fire near the pickup zone. And they would use a fact like us, if they were in the area, we fell under Sandy 1's lead. And he would hand off F-4s or Air Force or Navy fighters to work, uh, the periphery right while they're working the real SAR and uh, we thought we had it suppressed or Sandy thought they had it suppressed enough he sent the Jolly Green in and a B-40 rocket hit the uh, C, hit the
1: h 53
2: rotor head wow just took the main rotor out burst into a huge ball of flame
1: hmm and then they lost all five crew members. on end.
2: Obviously, no survivors. Uh, wow. They had gone in before to try to get in and got shot out.
1: They went back. And they
2: decided to go back.
1: That's the courage of the Jolly Green Giants and their crews. They were just amazing men.
2: And then the real courage of the Jolly Greens. The second guy.
1: Comes back. Another one.
2: Flies in right over the black spot on the ground that used to be his wingman. Mm-hmm. And picked up Al, who Amazing. we talked to this morning. We did. Because <laughs> <laughs> today is the anniversary, 51st anniversary of that incident.
1: June 30th, indeed. Yep. Yeah, and Al uh, previously, uh, he had run recon Yep. out of CCN, and highly respected recon man there, transferred over to NKP.
2: That's how he got our job. Indeed. We only had good recon people in the back, except right. for me. <laughs>
1: Don't be too hard on yourself, but in, in that case, there the key thing was to have a, have the fact rider with experience, so they could relate to the team on the ground, and they knew what they had and what they needed, and be able to tell the pilot, so what they could better coordinate with the air assets.
2: Perfect system,
1: and uh, and uh, you know for a more uh, uh, mission another one that was historic in nature, which is even, um, that was June 30th. Later that year, SOG did the first halo jump into Laos. It was RT Florida, Mel Hill was the one zero. Cliff, I think, was the 1-1, one one. No, or it was Sammy the 1-1. One
2: Sammy one. was, I think, I don't know. Either Any, way. Anyway. Everybody says Cliff was a team leader because he was the first man off of the ramp. Right. He was the first jumper. Yes. Yeah. But Melvin was the one zero.
1: Indeed. And so in the third American on that recon team, after they trained in Okinawa, trained up for several months to jump in the layoffs, it was the first halo jump, high altitude, combat 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 jump from 18,000 feet. And on... uh, One of the sidebar notes was they had a black box with them that in theory, when they got on the ground, that black box would put out a signal that would get to the other black boxes so the teams could get together. They just forgot one little point. The boxes were not waterproof and the team jumped in the rain from 18,000 feet and those boxes didn't work when they got on the ground. So you and your fact had to... Over the next couple of days, find them, locate them, and at some point, give them any support they needed and to bring them home. So uh, when do you get the first call on that? You were briefed, I assume, on the mission going in. And that sets the background for another major story from SOG, but from your perspective this time.
2: There's a a real backstory to this. (laughs) There always is, right? Uh, Once a quarter, every three months, I had to go down to Saigon to participate in the targeting conference. (laughs) So, uh, planning, you know, the next quarter's activity. So, six months before they jumped, I went down and they announced, they planned to have the first ever combat halo insertion on this date in this area.
1: Oh, yeah, I remember that.
2: So, I raised my hand and I said, uh, that is not going to happen, that won't work. Who are you and what do you know and why do you say that? So I've been flying up there uh, for quite a while. Yeah. And uh, they used to express cloud coverage in eights. <laughs> so eight eights was complete Maximum. overcast. Yeah. I said, that area at that time of year will be 8-H cloud coverage and raining. So I was told I was full of beans by a uh, first lieutenant Air Force meteorologist, and the (laughs) planning proceeded. So... uh, They went to Okinawa. They taught a couple of indigenous guys to free fall who maybe had never been in an airplane before in their life until they ran recon.
1: Well, yeah, there's a, we're good, We're going to get Cliff and or Sammy in here oh, to good. talk about that day. Yes, good, good. Absolutely, because yeah. they did train up their indigenous on their team for that. Yeah, yeah.
2: Amazing. So uh, I don't know how many aborts they had, but the night they jumped, they went up, a classic legendary Halo guy, the guy taught me Halo in Germany, Frank Norbury, was mm-hmm. the Jumpmaster. Wow. And the commander of the Ground Studies Group, Op 35, in McVie Sog headquarters, a full colonel, was riding along in the back, just as a spectator, for which he received the Distinguished Flying Cross. Oh. Uh, He would go unnamed. uh, Yeah. Frank Norbury did not calculate the release point, where to jump from. They used an Air Force system called CARP, the Computed Air Release Point. Ooh. So they put them out. The key to halo is grouping. doesn't matter where you land as long as you land together. Then, Then the unit can operate. You group in free fall. You can control your movements, almost like swimming. Once the low man opens his canopy, everybody opens their canopy, and you group during descent under canopy, and hopefully you all land together. That team could not see each other in free fall. They could not see each other under canopy, and they landed in six different places. Miles and miles from their intended drop zone.
1: Yeah, even off the map that they carried with them. We
2: always carried cut-down maps. So, you know, a huge sheet of paper to fool with. And it had your area and a few kilometers around. None of those people had any map sheet anywhere near where they were standing on the ground <laughs> in Laos. So the weather was also unworkable for us.
3: Wow. No so kidding.
2: we go out and start looking for them. And we start looking where they're supposed to be. And there ain't nothing. <laughs> and nobody's on the radio. In the meantime, Cliff stumbles across one of the mountain yards. And they had a, uh, I was surprised at this, uh Army of the Republic of Vietnam, Arvin, lieutenant with them. And we didn't have many Arvin around us. And that lieutenant and another mountain yard, they got together, Sammy all alone and Melvin all alone. So now we got four groups of people, no map sheet, don't know where they are, raining like hell, and away we go. Deep in Laos. (laughs) So uh, one day I was in the back seat, of a now-retired Air Force Brigadier General who wound up being a POW in the Hanoi Hilton. Right. Wonderful fellow, Jim Latham. And he was new to our program. So we're out flying around. I'm calling and calling, and finally on the FM radio I hear, oh. And so we start trying to do radio direction finding, trying to get his voice to come in
1: Is that on louder or ten frequency or FM? No, F M. FM, okay. Yeah, the team
2: radio. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we get to where their voice is pretty good and now we want to go down and get a visual on them. And we're in terrible mountains and there's clouds everywhere. And you get these what they call sucker holes (laughs) that you can fly down through. And there may be a mountain in there or maybe not. And then when you do your thing, then you don't know how to get back out. And
1: you're flying through thousands of feet of clouds or rain or all the above. Uh, Horrible.
2: Indeed. So I told Jim, you think you can get down through that hole? (laughs) He said, I'll try. So we're going down, going down. He said, you guys do this often? <laughs> I said, every day. <laughs> Just another day in SOG. So we get down, and everybody carried a, a little signaling mirror. It's got an aiming hole in the middle. and Oh, yeah. You can uh, then try to put it on the airplane. And I saw Cliff Newman's shiny. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. And so that was, I think, on the third day. Might have been the second, but I think yeah. the third. Yeah. And then it took us uh, at least two and maybe three more days to get marginally, marginally workable weather to get the A-1s and the helicopters in there. And uh, there was an air base south of Nacampanon called Uban. And if we had our extreme southern targets, we would move a temporary launch site down to Ubon. That's where we were working. So Al Massiello, and his pilot, Dick Hall, <laughs> they go out and uh, locate them and come back and, and brief. Okay, we're ready to go. And the helicopter said, we ain't going. Really? In this weather. And Dick Hall, a captain, talking to a squadron commander, lieutenant colonel, Said, you are going, you colonel, you coward, or I'll shoot you right here. No. Yep. Gunpoint. (laughs) Away they go. So we have four pickup sites now instead of one. And they got the two groups of two, and they got Sammy. Melvin hadn't been heard on the radio yet. We have no clue where Melvin is. And we're about to give up on him and leave. And he stepped out from inside an old, hollowed-out, rotten tree. (laughs) Really? Where he'd been holed up. (laughs) And they got Melvin, and away we went. Wow. Yeah. But that was the absolute height of foolishness and not giving a good damn about great people. Indeed. To put them out like that. So you can write down that you accomplished the first HALO mission. It was hailed as a great accomplishment. They didn't accomplish a damn thing except living.
1: Yeah. Survival became the primary mission one more time. Unbelievable. Um, Indeed. And then you were all part of that. How many sorties in between trying to find them? Well,
2: let's see. If they were out there five or six days, it was uh, 15 or 18 sorties. At least. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. My God. Yeah. A lot of time in the air, and you know, and dangerous, dangerous. dangerous, Because here's my next point: is when we talk about flying across the trail, people think, "Oh, you're in an airplane." There's the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which by 1970 had vastly increased uh, anti-aircraft capabilities on the trail, and because in November of 68, President Johnson had stopped bombing up north. And a lot of the anti-aircraft weaponry from there was shipped south. Yeah. And so just for a second or two, talk a little bit about what it was like just to cross the trail.
2: Well, they the Air Force had adopted a strategy of jinking. You didn't fly straight right. and level across the trail. Because if you did, you'd get shot Yeah, down. you left, right, up, down, right. Uh I was talking to you this morning about uh, a great photo I have of one of the C H threes before we shifted to the fifty threes, uh, was flying back with the team inside and the ramp open and a thirty seven millimeter, which is quite a any aircraft oh, yeah. gun, uh, the round entered the helicopter through the ramp and hit the fuselage and exploded on the way out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: That's a historic picture. of That hole. Oh yeah. And uh, who was the one zero? David. David. No, Carr. no.
2: David Carr was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was recon company commander. Okay. And he went out with the team. Okay. And that team was coming back. Wow. But I know that uh, David was in that aircraft.
1: Yes. And
2: then I you know, sent him that photo fifty years later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's a heck of a picture. And you know, uh, there's some other stories. One that just has a little bit of levity, but a high degree of seriousness to it, is one of our uh, recon men, Robert Master Joseph, <laughs> and his one zero was uh, Mike Dugan, and one of our highly respected one zeros out of C C N. They came over to N K P again because of the weather. They had the launch from N K P, and uh, this was Bob's early first mission or very first mission. And during the briefing at some point, there was this discussion about, we we really want to get a POW. Yeah. And they're talking back and forth. And Mike Dugan goes, well, give us a target. And of course, your people had a perfect target. They would have a lot of high activity. And you said, we can find it for you. And Master Joseph spoke up saying, I'd give my left nut to get a POW. Yeah. So for take it from there, they launch yeah. into this deadly target area, yeah. and then...
2: <laughs> There's a little bit of background to that. Uh, Please. You know, they'd arrive in NKP and have one evening before we'd put them in the next day. Yeah. So we'd sit around and talk with them, and uh, Master Joseph said, uh, I hope we make contact tomorrow. I need to get my combat infantry badge, my right. CIB. <laughs> and uh, Mike Dugan said, uh, no, we run good recon. On uh, RT Massachusetts, and the uh, objective is not to make contact. And Chief, you're going to be the only guy to ever run recon for one year in C-C-N <laughs> and go home without a CIB. <laughs> oh, no, I got to get my CIB. And he said, but what I would really, I would give my left nut for a prisoner. Yeah. So I told Mike, I said, if you guys want a prisoner, I forget their mission was just some kind of area recon. This was a bad area. Yeah, They have some uh, limestone outcroppings that are tall, mountainous, bare rock called karst over there. And uh, in their area, I mean, we could get away with putting them there, uh, was this big karst with a big cave at the bottom of it. And trails came out of that cave, and they looked like a peacock's tail or something. They just fanned in every direction, countless trails going in this cave. I said, uh, Mike, there's something going on in that cave. We don't know what it is, but I'm sure they would love to know in Saigon. Because there were rumors, uh, probably you heard, that there were American POWs being held in karst uh, caves. Yeah. So we would like to... uh, find out what's going on there I said if you want to try to get a prisoner we will put you down not 10 feet in front of the cave yeah. but out in front of that cave and the helicopters and the A1s are not going anywhere <laughs> because you're going to be in there 10 or 20 minutes I think yeah <laughs> So at that time, getting a prisoner was a big deal in Sog. Always a big deal. Oh, the little people got a hundred bucks each, and we say that lovingly. We yeah. loved our indigenous troops. Indeed. Uh they got a hundred dollars, which was hell of a lot of money for them. And uh, the Americans would give maybe a Seiko watch and a free R and R trip and anywhere in the world. Yeah. So he said, "Yeah, let's let's go for it." So we put them down, and the helicopters moved. <laughs> two minutes away, and they weren't in there 10 minutes, and we got a radio call that said, uh, we have a prisoner and we have one wounded American. So we always sent one more helicopter than was required to lift the team with a medic on board. We called it the chase ship. Right. So if somebody was wounded, you send the chase ship in first to get the team out. That way the
1: medic can tend to the wounded.
2: Yeah. So Johnny Hanna was the chase medic. They go out. He calls up and he says, uh, Chief got his wish. <laughs> 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 and so when we get back to the launch side and start hearing more of this story, an AK-47 round just clipped, barely clipped the bottom of the, chief master joseph scrotum and the left one fell out (laughs) and dangled down to knee level (laughs) on this little squiggly conduit indeed and uh, the chief says uh, doc can you save it and johnny says uh, doc it looks like you're going to get your wish yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you've dedicated one ball for this mission. So the
2: things, the things we laugh about now. My wife is always uh, uh, can't believe the stories we tell and then just laugh like hell. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Master Joseph was quite a character in his own right.
2: He used to come to our reunion, which is kind of wild and crazy. Sometimes he brought his mom to the <laughs> reunion every year. I remember. <laughs>
1: So uh, so on a personal note, again, before you became a fact writer, NKP, you spent time on the ground. Not only running recon out of CCS, but also a couple of missions out of CCN. So that gives you the background experience of being the time on the ground. And then also prior to that, you're experiencing the mic force. So if you could take us back a little bit, wind us back, because even in the mic force, uh, some of the veterans that have been there said, "Well, you saw, guys. You ran recon. You tried to run low profile, maintain low profile. If you made contact, you escape and evade, and go home. You're compromised. Mike Force. Our job was to defend an A camp, help an A camp, or to go hunt the NVA, which mm-hmm. they've done with with historic results. And so you land in Vietnam, and take it from there. Your first assignment, because your tour is going to Ben Het." etc. That is just another sidebar to this. We'll come yeah. back to some other SOG stuff a yeah. little bit, but for your background, which is part
2: of the, your amazing story. The, uh, the story began in Germany. I was in the 10th Special Forces Group. Indeed. I joined them, totally unqualified, and, and went through their <laughs> training there and became SF qualified. And I got orders to Vietnam. I had a wonderful, wonderful NCO on my A-team. It had served in the two-core Mike Force. In Vietnam, it was divided up for command and control into four cores, and each core had a mobile strike force, Mike Force, and a number of aid detachments located in camps. And the uh, indigenous people who lived near those camps would be paid a low salary, and they're supposed to defend that area. And then the Mike Force, a different number of A-teams in each corps. We had five in two corps. Uh, We had an A-team in command, no Vietnamese counterparts, of a, a battalion of local indigenous. I had 450 Rade Mountain Yards. But I didn't know much about any of that. I'm back in Germany, and I have this wonderful NCO, Peter Holmberg. And I get orders to Vietnam. And I said, Pete, where should I go? He said, oh, go to Mike Force. If you can, go to 2 Corps Mike Force. Don't go to SOG. Everyone gets killed. (laughs) Okay?
1: Everyone gets killed.
2: So my orders were to the 173rd Airborne Brigade. Ooh. I didn't want to go to that. That's not SF. I didn't want to go to that. So the guy who got me in Special Forces had been the S one, the personnel guy for the tenth group, Major Jim Chrysell, retired Major General, commanded the twenty-fifth infantry division, it was a great, great guy. He was now at the fifth group headquarters in Natrang <laughs> as the S three. So my airplane landed in Cameron Bay. And they said, everyone line up over here and in process. Well, I went to the nearest telephone. I called Jim Chrysler and I said, I don't want to go to the 173rd. Can you get me to group? He said, my roommate in the BOQ is the group S1. Oh! Don't talk to anyone. <clears throat> don't call me back in an hour and a half. So I call him back and he said, okay. He said, they're so mad at us. We keep stealing these guys. They said, you can have it. <laughs> but. The next guy that gets off that plane for the fifth group is going to the 173rd. Turned out to be a good friend of mine. Oh, was that really? Pat McGuire. Oh. Did a year in the 173rd. Oh, no. So uh, <clears throat> I, I go up to uh, the C team in charge in uh, Pleiku, and three captains walk in. And the deputy commander says, where do you want to go? And the first guy says, well, I'm, previous tour, I commanded an A camp. I'm coming up for major. I would like to uh, be on the higher level staff so I can prove I can work. Okay. The next guy says, uh, I'm, I'm not very confident about commanding an A team in combat. Could I work in the S3 shop or something for six months and then I'll go to the field? I said, I want to go the two core Mike Force. He said, You're going where you want. <laughs> <laughs> he told that first guy, you're going to command a so and so at a certain camp, and he told poor Pat Kingsley, You're going to command the A team at Ben Het.
1: And this is before Ben before the was
2: stuff hit the fan. Ben Het at one time was taking fifteen hundred rounds a day of artillery and rockets and I mean it was just horrible. And where was Ben Het located? It's on right on the border um, in II Corps to the west. I think it's probably west of Khantoum, I would say. Yeah. It's south of uh, Dokpek and Dokto and those. But anyway, we had five battalions in Tucor Corps, and for the longest time during that siege, we kept two or three of our five battalions at ben Wow. There were several regiments walking around of Hardcore NBA walking around out there.
1: That's three thousand enemy with your four hundred. Yeah, four hundred and fifty. <laughs> Versus your four hundred and fifty.
2: So I told you the story about my battalion and I lucked into a hand picked A team. Indeed. By a guy who had been a command sergeant major and got a direct commission to captain, and he was allowed to hand pick his old buddies from the first group. Wonderful, wonderful A team, some rock stars. Yeah. And uh, he was getting too old. He couldn't hump the highlands in two cores. So I got his team, and away we go to Benhet. One day we climbed a mountain and we found a regimental defensive position dug in. That looked like an engineer battalion at Fort Benning had dug it as a a training aid of how this is how you would do your perfect. So you walked
1: into an enemy camp that at that point was not occupied with enemy soldiers.
2: We could smell them. Their cook fires were still warm. Wow. You could smell the rice. Where they had removed the tripods and things for their weapons, the dirt had not begun crumbling yet. I mean, they had just left. So wow. they had this worthless major from the 2 corps Mike force up there as the task force commander, because we had multiple battalions up there. Right? right. So I called and reported, and he said, Oh, this is great. Divide your battalion up into the three companies, so that would be 150 right. people separate them by at least one kilometer each and find that regiment. Oh, (laughs) I said, no, sir, we are not going to do that. (laughs) I've got 14-year-old soldiers carrying M1 carbines still. Yeah. And uh, if we find that regiment, we'll be decimated, and we're not going to do that. He said, you're defying a direct order in combat. I said, you bet you're bippy, pal. We'll talk this out when I get home. When I hung up, the NCO said, that's the best radio call I ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah.
1: That night... And you lived to talk about it. But that night... People did not live to talk
2: about it. That yeah. night, our sister battalion in a valley just south of us got lit up. The battalion commander killed. They were Australian team. We had Aussies commanding some of the teams. Right, Yes. Uh, Keith Payne won the Victoria Cross, their oh, Medal of Honor. Yeah. They were decimated, that battalion. Uh, never went to the field again. Parceled out the survivors to other units and everything. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm so glad I followed that yeah. order.
1: Thank you for following your common yeah. sense.
2: So you're right. Uh, <clears throat> Mike Force and um, Sog, uh, two sides of the special ops coin, Uh, We would stay in the field uh, up to a month. You didn't smell very good. Your clothes weren't in very good shape. Uh, A month. Yeah.
1: No bass. No,
2: no (laughs) bass. But we could get resupplied, which a recon team, you'd never want to get a a resupply. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: My God. So from there, you hear about MACV SOG? Not much.
2: I don't know how I knew that Colonel Isler, who had commanded uh, CCN, had moved down to Saigon, and he uh, was in command of Ground Studies Group, which owned all the CNC's, all right. the re- recon teams. Uh, it's too long a story to go into, but uh, my B team commander, a major got some bad poop about two of my NCOs, he got drunk out of his mind, he called me and Bammy me to it and said, you and those two sons of bitches get up here today. I said, sir, the last milk run has has just left. He said, I don't give a damn, you get up here today. I said, well, first you'll have to identify the two sons of bitches. And one was an SF legend that after he retired, ran Camp McCall many years. Lowell Stevens had run uh, recon at Contum. And Donnie Simmons, who was a big, big name in the scuba community at Key West for many years. And then he went to Delta and became a legend in Delta. Two of the greatest guys. And uh, here's this major. He's down on him because he's gotten some really false intel. So... um, We were billeted at BAMITUIT East Airfield, and at night the airlift control element wanted to pull their comm trailer into our compound so it would be secure when they all went home. So they owed us. They turned around a C-123 that had left BAMITUIT for Pleiku, picked three of us up, and take us. So that major harangued us drunk out of his mind all evening, fired us, kicked us out of the mic force. So we went across the street to the C team. They were having a floor show at the club that night. We three sitting there. Here came all the Mike force <laughs> guys. The major's talking trash about us all night. And then by the end of the floor show, he said, Oh, come, come on back. You guys are Mike force. You belong with us. So we go back over. We're in the mess hall. And he flip-flops again, and he gets in all three of us' face, has us lined up at attention, just cursing and swearing and everything. So one of the three of us, who will remain unnamed, punched <laughs> him right in the mouth. I mean, his lip exploded like a giant grape. <laughs> Did you cut your knuckle? No. Okay. W- not going there. Uh, the next morning, he called us in. He had that big lip. <laughs> And apologized, and he said we could stay. And uh, those two guys decided to stay. I said, no, I'm out of here. I can't work right. for you anymore. So uh, I called the Iceman. I had worked for Isler in Germany. We played handball together.
1: And by then he was a cr- full Full, bar, full, right? colonel, full colonel, colonel. colonel. Jack Isler.
2: Yeah, I was a captain. It started out, he was a lieutenant colonel. I was a first lieutenant. Odd relationship, but we were best handball opponents in a- Germany. In Germany. And I, uh, my wife and I uh, babysat his kids, and so we were tight. So I called him and said, uh, I, I need a home. I got to go. He said, CCS was right across the street, but I didn't know anything about them or what they did. <laughs> he said, go over there. Tell the commander I sent you there to run recon." So the first three times I went into Cambodia... <laughs> Whoa. I wasn't on the unit roster. <laughs> the orders hadn't come through yet. <laughs> I don't know what would happen if I hadn't come wow. back. Wow. Yeah. So that's how I passed through the mic for six months and uh, came to CCS.
1: Welcome to SOG. Yeah. So you in 12 God. missions. I thank, mean,
2: thank God. Uh, I wouldn't trade anything for my time in SOG.
1: Indeed. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's saying something in and of itself. And so from there, you spent some time. Then after 12 missions, you spent some time as a desk officer for (laughs) Op-35 before you go up to CCN, before you go to NKP. But even there are some valuable insights as to how the secret war was conducted.
2: I think, um, first of all, Jim Storter, who had run recon to CCN, a captain, he'd been an instructor at Ranger School, terrific guy. He was the CCN desk officer at their higher headquarters, Op 35. Right. And his dad was passing away. He needed to go home on a compassionate reassignment. And I think it dawned on Isler that here's his buddy, the little captain out there that may not come back, and he didn't want that happening on his watch. So he pulled me to Op 35 as the CCN desk officer. Again, six months. I couldn't hold a job over six months. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so then at some point, they flip you up to CCN in Da
1: Nang, and then you, you uh, this is the thing I like about your story, because you come to CCN, it's a different AO, and you said, before I do anything, I want to run some recon, and you did. No, no, no. No, tell no, me how. No.
2: That's why we're here. I go up to... Uh CCN to in-process. They kept all our payroll records, personnel records, logistics. We were attached to them for admin and logistics. Okay. But we were operational control of OP-35. We were SOG headquarters launch site, not CCN's launch site. Right. So I arrive up there and I ask, is there any way to fly a visual reconnaissance, a VR, out over the CCN-AO. I was used to the CCS-AO operation area. Um, Not to denigrate CCS at all. They ran good recon down there and some real heroes. Uh, highly decorated people. people yeah, Roy that Benavides earned his Medal of Honor on a CCS target. People that should have been oh. awarded and weren't, as happened in much of SOG. Nothing whatsoever against them. No. But you fly over Cambodia and you fly over Northern Prairie Fire and tell me it's the same thing. <laughs> well, I'm biased, but... <laughs> I flew out that day, and it looked like the interchange of I-65 and I-40 with all the state road feeders and clover leaves and on-ramps, and uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was not a trail, I can assure you. Mountains, 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 mountains. Increasing
1: anti-aircraft?
2: And enemy people
3: running around.
2: Buku. That you could see. (laughs) No kidding.
1: I mean... Even from your VR.
2: Oh, yeah. Was. Oh, yeah. NVA and pith helmets with AK-4. And there wasn't any SKS and a no. floppy hat. No, no. trained soldiers. So I came back, and I didn't think I belonged in the recon club, which is where I would have liked to be with the guys. Sure. But I wasn't in recon company, and so I went up to the... Rear Echelon Pukes (laughs) Club. (laughs) And I'm standing there talking to a friend of mine. Can't remember who it was. But the commander of CCN, who turned out to be a total ass, and I hope I get a chance to tell you the story of Operation Cherry Bark. Ooh. (laughs) Was standing behind me, and I didn't know it. And I said... uh, I don't know how you get people to run recon out there. And if you do, I don't know how you get any of them back.
1: Wow, no kidding.
2: So this guy said, the colonel says, well, you're a goddamn coward, and I'm not going to have a coward working at my launch site. I said, well, first of all, it's not your launch site. (laughs) That's Colonel Isler's launch site. And Chief Soggs, not your launch site. You do the paperwork for them. That's about <laughs> it. I said, and I am not a coward. I will go out with any recon team you have. Would you like to go with us? Oh, I have important business and this, that, and other. So I walked out. I was mad. So didn't hit him, though. No. Or the other guy. Not, oh. not proven. <laughs> So I walked down. Let me see down, your
1: knuckle first. Let me show you
2: are <laughs> I walked down to the uh, recon club. Yeah. And ran into our friend. Eldon Legend. Barjwell. I mean, deserved legend, Eldon Bargewell. Indeed. And I told him my story. And he took me over to a guy he liked and respected called Ron Ray. Oh, yeah. And uh, Ron was sitting there with his one-one. And I said... Uh, I need to shut up your commander up there. I need to strap hang with somebody. He said, I don't take strap hangers. <laughs> but ask Randy, if he'll let you carry the radio, you can go as the one, too.
1: <laughs> Randy Suber is the one, one. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So uh, I ran two missions with them. Just, I wanted to... Establish some bona fides with the recon guys. Sure. There.
1: And you did. I mean you get on the ground twice and on one target it sounded like you had a successful mission. Five days on the ground. Five trail days Overwatch. on the
2: ground uh watching a, a river crossing. And the other one was a relative success in the ashow. We stayed two days in the Ashau. That's a long stay. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Before you get chased out. Yeah. Under heavy enemy gunfire.
2: Well, under some gunfire. Indeed. Yeah.
1: So this is all now we're talking the summer or... Late early, 69, really. Late 69.
2: Right before Ron and Randy...
1: Yeah, November 10th, 1969. Went missing. Yeah, on uh, November 3rd, we had RT Maryland that uh, all the Americans were killed. The Indigents survived. And then on November 10th, that team went down. Those two men are still amongst the 50... Green Berets who are MIA today uh, from the secret war in Laos, mm-hmm. and uh, just out—you know—you and I are biased. We knew, we knew them. They were just studs, and uh, they were—they
2: were good in the woods. They, they were, they were no.
1: And so after that experience, at some point you go over to NKP, yeah, and uh, you do your missions there, and um, you know I, I think one of those other stories, people talk about the ironies of life, how things unfold. Um, when you're at CCS, you met an outstanding recon man down there who was a fellow officer, Captain Don Carr. And uh, you <laughs> you had some interesting times down there with him. And uh, um, take just a little bit more background, how you two got together and then how, Later on, he was calling you a ref and, you,
2: and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, at CCS, and I expect maybe at some of the other CNCs, a new guy was not welcomed with open arms and uh, became your best friend right away because some of them didn't last too long and you didn't want to be invested in.
1: Yeah, the, personal, the personality side yeah, of it, yeah. sure.
2: Don wasn't that way with me. He was very good friend, very nice, and uh, he had a silver star from a previous tour. I really respected and admired him.
1: Again, he was a captain, also. Yeah, another captain. Sure.
2: And uh, so when the Ice Man pulled me down to Saigon, Don just couldn't help but <laughs> laugh and laugh and call me a rimp, a rear echelon MF. <laughs> So I go down to Saigon, I work a while, and uh, the CCS desk officer was leaving and needed replacement. Oh. (laughs) So I told Isler, I know the perfect guy. (laughs) (laughs) So he pulled Don Carr down there. Uh. (laughs) Oh. And he never could prove I had anything to do with it. I asked him, who's a remp now, you know? (laughs) Yeah, indeed. (laughs) So then I go up to NKP and... uh, and am the ops officer and flying uh, for a year. And the S3, the operations officer at CCC, was leaving. Well-known guy. And I got a call that said, you're going to go to Khantoum and replace this guy. Right. And I didn't want to go. I mean, NKP was heaven. Oh. You're fighting this secret war in the day. And you're living in safety in Thailand at night.
1: It was wonderful.
2: And because we were stationed in Da Nang and T.D.Y. to N.K.P., we drew per diem every
1: oh, day. That's right. I forgot that side of the coin. T.D.
2: extra money when you have to go on temporary duty. Oh, yeah. you're a filthy rich compared to us peons. <laughs> or I wasted more than you wasted. <laughs> Uh, So anyway, they told me, Don Carr is going to come replace you. And I felt so happy for NKP. Yeah. They couldn't have gotten a better guy.
1: Because he had all the experience. The prerequisites were in place, and he was a tough, good recon.
2: Personality, team member. Indeed. Aces. So uh, Don comes up, and I uh, pack up my stereo gear, and I'm just waiting. We have about a one-week overlap and uh he flew a couple of times, uneventful, and uh I took him to the aircraft to go out again, and they didn't come back indeed and uh Saigon told me we don't have anybody else to replace you with right now, so I'm packing stage, so I stayed another year. And
1: that's just one of those horrible moments in time where such a good friend, a comrade in arms, comes up, slayed to replace you, and then goes out on a mission that you could have been on. And oh, results- I thought about
2: that many, many times. I probably went out 150 times before him and 150 after her. And he went out about maybe five times. Right. Yeah, you, you can't explain it, except I do explain it now to myself. He was new. Yeah. His pilot was new.
1: Oh, that's right. I forgot the pilot was new also for the Air
2: Force. And uh, I wasn't in that duty position anymore, but I had a voice. And I should have said those two shouldn't go out together. But it never crossed my mind because all those guys over there were such pros. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we don't know what happened. It was like the time we found the Halo team. Bad, bad mountains. Bad, bad weather. Clouds everywhere. And fearless
1: pilots that got you through and the find these guys. But
2: they didn't have any mission that would have required that. As far as I know, there was only, and and this shouldn't matter, but an all-Vietnamese team right, in the area, only the one team. They weren't in trouble, and they reported hearing a loud boom. We don't know if it was any aircraft fire. Right. I suspect they ran into a mountain. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. And that they were into their sortie— They should have called us and said, we're checking out and coming home. We flew that... Oh, they found the aircraft many, many years later and uh, brought Danny and Don home.
1: Indeed. Yeah. And um, the pilot, was that Dan Young?
2: Thomas. Thomas. Dan Thomas, Young First Lieutenant.
1: Yeah. That's just, again, the secret war with this just traumatic repercussions You never know what's going to happen when you're on the ground or on the air over a target because people, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're here with you is to talk about that side of it that, that brought you there.
2: Yeah, you know, I drove him to the airplane. He had his survival vest and his helmet right. and all that gear. Laughing and joking, and he climbs up in the canopy, <laughs> and we just wave, and away they go. Just another day at NKP. Yeah, yeah. And it turned out to be a crappy, crappy day at NKP. Oh, my
1: God. I can't imagine. And uh, through it all, you had to march on for another year. And then, you know, how many times over your 300-plus missions, how many times did you fly in an aircraft that you take incoming? You have
2: rounds of shrapnel. Uh, many times you don't know you're getting shot at. <laughs> the only times you know about is uh when you come back with holes in the aircraft.
1: you don't feel the no is that right because you have yeah. your the small arms
2: up. no mm-hmm. I mean if a twenty three or thirty seven hits you, yeah oh, but oh. uh well, when we were flying over to locate the uh halo team. Right, Sammy comes up and says, hey, you guys, don't go near that village. They're shooting the crap out of you every time you go by there. We had no idea. No. And when we landed, the tail was full of holes. <laughs> <laughs> Just didn't hit a control wire or the gas tank or anything like that.
3: Oh, my
1: God. Well, um, one of the things that we had talked about before, but we didn't get into any details, was Operation Cherry
2: Bark. Okay. Is that something we can talk about or I want to talk it, it sounded about sounded like a yeah, let's do that. I want to talk about <laughs> that and I want to name names. Ooh. This that's... guy should be shamed. On every platform he can be shamed on. Awards and decorations Ooh. in sog is a little bit difficult to talk about because we had more medal of honor winners per capita than any unit. Bob Howard should have gotten three. Yeah, he's put in for three. <laughs> and the first one was downgraded to DSC. Yeah. The second one was approved. And when they opened up the third one, they said, Ain't nobody getting two. <laughs> so he got another DSC. Yeah. So it's hard to say <laughs> that SOG was crap on awards and decorations mm. when you have that evidence. But how many people do we know? Like Gary Robb, who ran amazing recon. He's the only guy I knew that went with one American on his team. And he ran with two Hoys. Three former NVA's who had left them and came to us. You know what his highest award is? Army Commendation Medal with a V device, which is nothing. That's a thanks for participating thing. Okay, I told you I had to go to Saigon for the targeting conference. So I get a call one day. (laughs) Oh, it was fun to go down there because they had a little Learjet that did uh, courier runs.
1: Oh, yeah, the officers got that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So I got a Learjet to Saigon and back every three months.
3: Oh, my God. So they
2: called me and said, uh, the admin NCO is going to pick you up at the Skatback and you're to go over to the uh, MACV, Military Assistance Command Vietnam Inspector General Office. And I thought, crap, Ooh. what do they know about now? <laughs> so I get there, and this uh, full colonel, Inspector General, Shows me a letter from Chief Sog that says he's authorized to know anything and everything and to be fully cooperative with him. And he said, what do you know about Operation Cherry Bark? I said, well, when I worked in Op 35, Op 80, which was the Joint Personnel Recovery Center, the POW MIA guys, came down and said, hey, we've got some intel from down in 4th Corps, down in the Delta, somebody is saying he's seen some American prisoners of war. We don't want to gen up any units down there because they'll know locally something is up. So we want to gen up a hatchet force. These are the larger CCN units right. that go in ready for bear, ready to fight, like a mini Mike force almost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Same,
2: same. Um. But before we deploy anybody, uh, this guy's name was Major Jim Rabdow, a great big SF guy, real good guy. He said, I'm going down to four core to uh, get better, more complete intel, and I want Mike uh, to go with me. So we go down there. And we find out that this guy, maybe he heard from another guy who maybe heard that over in this general area, there might have been some uh, blah, blah, nothing. Too many maybes. Not actionable whatsoever. So we come back to Saigon, the whole thing is scrubbed. No one ever went anywhere or did anything except me and Jim Rabdow went and had a nice lunch and talked to a... (laughs) Horrible informant. Yeah. So this colonel says, "Uh, and that's all you know about Operation Cherry Bark? I said, yes. He said, well, read this and see how this jives with your memory.
0: The The
2: name was blacked out. But Lieutenant Colonel Blank was flying above his hatchet force company it was trying to free some POWs. And he got word that uh, one of his people was wounded and trying to get to the LZ with a uh, POW, enemy, not a freed American. Right. And uh, so he told his command and control helicopter to land on that piece of terrain and we're going to pick up this wounded guy and this prisoner. The uh, guy is struggling with his wounds to get to the helicopter, so Lieutenant Colonel Blank jumps out of his helicopter, runs across the LZ, and assists the wounded man and the prisoner and gets them all in the helicopter. Silver Star for jumping out of the helicopter and running over there and getting that guy. Really? Soldier's Medal for saving the wounded guy's life. As they're lifting out, the door gunner gets shot. The colonel pulls him out of his seat. The lieutenant colonel sits at the door gunner's machine gun and fires up the enemy as they leave. Distinguished flying cross. Whew. Three very high medals in 15 minutes.
1: That's, that's metal harvesting at its best.
2: That didn't happen. Oh, my. That, my friend, is nothing. Mm. That is not the tip of the iceberg. So he typed up a statement that I signed saying none of this occurred. (laughs) Never happened. He said, let me show you something. You know the brown paper all rolled up, butcher butcher paper? He unrolls his chart. The left hand, well, the x axis is the DSC down to probably the Good Conduct Medal. Every medal we have except the Medal of Honor. And then the bar graph across Y was color coded red, Army Channels, blue, Air Force Channels, green, Arvin Channels. And uh, across the y-axis was uh, submitted, approved, or sent to higher headquarters, approved there, or sent to the next higher headquarters. This guy, Lieutenant Colonel Donahue, West Pointer, non-SF. Tanker. Put into command CCN by General Abrams tanker who aided special forces, Indeed, had caused himself to be put in for every medal we have other than the Medal of Honor. Here's how they got him. The DSC, you have to have weather, terrain, vegetation. You have to have everything detailed. I's dotted, T's crossed. It got to Department of the Army, and they said, this is lacking certain things. Send it back to the guy who submitted it for for correcting it. The name and the signature attached there was Colonel Jack Isler, now retired. Isler says, not my signature, not my submission, all lies. The next signature up the chain was Anthony Zerby, Air Force 06, Deputy Chief Sog. He said, not my signature, not my submission. You know what they did to Donahue? What did they do? Allowed to retire with full pension and benefits. No. Yep. So I hope you're out there. Donahue, (laughs) listening to this, I live in Anacortes, Washington. I'm easy to find. Indeed. Or just
1: come to the SOA meeting There's so many of us that do not like you, sir.
2: (laughs) No, he won't come to that. No. But one-on-one. If you want to defend what you consider your honor, please, (laughs) I invite you. I'll pick you up at the Seattle airport. (laughs) Well, it, um, one of the
1: burning issues that you and I have talked about off the mic today, quickly referred to it, um, is the whole POW-MIA issue itself. And uh, first of all, how many years of military service altogether?
2: 25.
1: 25. And um, that included a couple of interesting tours of duty in foreign countries that we could talk a little bit about.
2: Yeah, I became a Middle East foreign area officer, so I spent uh, multiple tours in Saudi Arabia and one in Egypt. That's under the State Department? No, no.
1: Under DOD? Uh,
2: Yeah, DOD has what's called Security Assistance Organizations, and they all have different names, sure. but they're out there to train, advise, assist, and uh, manage foreign military sales cases. Sure. Yeah. So the in Saudi Arabia, they have two armed forces. They have their Ministry of Defense, and then they have a separate Saudi Arabian National Guard, which is not like our National Guard. They're like a royal guard. They're an anti-coup force. If anybody in the Army or Air Force or anything ever tried to overthrow the king, the Saudi Arabian National Guard will go knock them out. That's who I was with.
1: Right, and you were helping train them up.
2: <clears throat> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, wasn't there—
1: Somebody had a little bit of a link there, a, a unique link that uh, introduced you to
2: all that. The Saudis, well, he didn't introduce me to it. He he helped me. Yes, indeed. Uh, the Saudis decided they wanted to form Delta, a version of Delta. Indeed. So our dear friend Eldon.
1: Eldon Barth wrote it first, the one, the only.
2: I don't know if he was commanding Delta then or had a squadron or what. I think he was the commander. And I called him and said, uh, can you come with a small mobile training team and help me out here? And uh, sure. before you come, you should realize, you know, they're not going to be a Delta. But if we can give them any capabilities, you know, come sure. me. Yeah, so he did. Elton and three or four guys came over. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and then later you were involved in Egypt with the hijacking takedown of Malta? <clears throat>
2: I had gone on a vacation to Cairo with my wife and we said how would you like to live in this heap <laughs> <laughs> and we both said no way yeah uh so I leave Saudi Arabia I go back to Fort Bragg for the foreign area officer course and I get a call I said we need to go you to go back to the region uh the uh Marine barracks had been bombed in Lebanon. Yeah. And the uh, commission that studied it decided they needed more uh, people that spoke the language, had recent experience in the region, needed more of us over there. So they said, uh, we really need you to go to Egypt. So I went home and I told Laura, here's a chance to work SF, Duties and FAO duties, same time, kind of right. unique. Can you put up with two years in Cairo? So she's a real trooper and Indeed. away we went. <laughs> While we were there, there was at least one terrorist-type attack, like the Achille Lauro right. uh, during my tour. Wow. And one was the hijacking of an Egypt Air aircraft that was leaving Athens and I think headed for Cairo. And these guys hijacked them and took them to Malta. And they started uh, shooting hostages in the head and tossing them out the door up at that height, off the tarmac. Uh, The Maltese are in bed with the Libyans. They did not want to allow the U.S. or U.K. or anybody in there. They said the Egyptians could go. 777 is the name of that unit. And uh, they asked the U.S. for some help. They wanted escort fighters off the Mediterranean uh, aircraft carriers as they passed by Libya. They were afraid. Libya and uh, Egypt were bad enemies. Uh. Right. They were afraid their C-130 full of uh, commandos would get shot down. So the U.S. said, okay, we'll escort you. And they said, we would like an American on board our <laughs> C-130. <laughs> really? So that we're sure that the Navy will protect the C-130. <laughs> Oh, my God. So away I go.
3: Is that right?
2: <laughs> Along with two other guys. Yeah. In the movie The Green Berets, which Tom loves there, there's a, uh <laughs> Asian-American, he's Hawaiian, who plays a Vietnamese general that they kidnap and send him up in the skyhook. That's a guy named Bill Olds. Okay, He yes. used to BSF. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Know that name. And then our boss in Cairo, a guy named Brigadier General Wiegand, who used to command the center in schools at Bragg. So uh, General Wiegand puts out the word that we're going to travel in desert camouflage and green berets. Oh. All of the terrorists are in uh, Nike tracksuits and blue jeans, and as they should be. Yeah. So we land in Malta and here's the Maltese government standing there and their British advisors and three Green Berets get off and they went through the goddamn roof, man. They were mad. (laughs) So we were not allowed to accompany the commandos on the raid. We were held at the uh, control tower. No kidding. And they went out there and like uh, many good demo people... They calculated the size of the charge that could breach the fuselage and then tripled it and doubled it again and everything. They claim that their breach attempt did not set the airplane on fire. They say that the terrorists threw a, a thermite grenade and that set it on fire. It's on that piece of paper. The. Uh, First word I got from the commandos commandos over the radio was mission success. We freed all the hostages. Well, they were free, but fifty-eight out of ninety-five—I think the numbers are on there—were they are right burned up. Wow. Yeah. Whew. Not a good day. My God. Not a good day. No. The sad thing, Eldon and those guys were ready to come. They were in Sigonella. And one of my roles was if the Egyptian commandos needed any special equipment or advice, expertise, I was to call Eldon and get the
1: whatever they needed. Wow, that's all right. They were standing by.
2: They were ready to go. Oh. And uh, for them, piece of cake. Yeah. Fifty-eight people probably still be alive. My God.
1: Well, moving right along, sir... Um, As I said, the Mm POW-MIA issue, which is deep in our hearts, and uh, you've done some significant work there. There's a couple of veterans associations that are formed by special forces. The one that's uh, probably nearest and dearest to our hearts is the Special Operations Association, formed by the recon men, and then later Hatchet Force. And the founder was Jim Butler, our first uh, one-zero, and his number is 001, and uh, there's a Special Forces Association. And over the years, the SOA has been actively involved with the different government agencies that they keep changing the name. Today, it's the DPAA, the Department of POW, MIA Accounting Accounting Agency. And in 2013, you were appointed as chairman of the SOA, S-F-A-P-O-W-M-I-A committee? No. You were on the committee? No. How'd that work? Besides, I thought you you were president. The president of the
2: Special Operations Association was a guy named John Stryker Tilt-Meyer. And at our reunion one year, he walked out of the board meeting or whatever the high muckety-mucks were doing (laughs) and said, come here, Mike. (laughs) You've been a member of this organization for over 40 years. You've never done a damn thing for us. (laughs) I want you to head the POW MIA committee. Well, the issue is close to our hearts, so I said I'd be glad to. I didn't know much about the status of the mission uh, at all. My wife and I were on an RV trip on the East Coast, and the National League of POW MIA Families was getting ready to have their annual meeting. And they have all the high level DOD uh, muckety mucks come and speak, and then the families speak. And so I went to that. And, and I have
1: a part of annual briefings. Yeah,
2: I, I learned so much at that. And then I uh, started calling people like Cliff. Cliff Newman. You. Yeah. Spider Parks. And forming Wade Ishimoto, uh, SF, you know, cream of the crop guys to form this committee so that when we said something, people would know who we were and listen. And then I realized it was only the SOA POWMIA committee. I was writing letters to the President of the United States, to Congress, to SECDEF, and I was speaking on behalf of 2,000 people. So at that time, Cliff Newman was uh, Executive Director of the Special Forces Association, much larger than us, because anybody who's SF qualified can join.
1: And Cliff had been the prior president of the SOA many years before that, had been a board director, etc., And now he was executive director of the SFA. So I
2: called Cliff, and I said, this won't cost you guys any money. We (laughs) would like to add you to the committee as the SFA representative, and we would like to be a joint SOA-SFA committee. So he ran it past their board, and they agreed. So now I could say we're writing on behalf of 12,000. Special operators, which Indeed. is a lie, because most of the 2,000 are also members of the 10,000. But yeah. who's going to catch me? So, Indeed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've gotten pretty active. Um, we were the first entity ever invited by the National League to accompany them on a delegation to Southeast Asia.
1: Which was it 2017.
2: 2017. Went to uh, Bangkok, uh, Laos, Cambodia, and Hanoi. Never dreamed I'd go to Hanoi. Yeah. Um, we received the National League of POW/MIA Families Award. They give an annual award. We got that. And so, uh, yeah, we're doing pretty good. Well.
1: Hey, we got to back the tape up just a little bit here, Mr. Modesty, <laughs> because <laughs> uh, one of the most dreaded elements of running SOG recon, particularly in Prairie Fire in the early years, uh, was the dreaded NVA sappers. And they uh, surfaced several times. in August 23rd, killed 16 Green Berets. That would be four uh, recon teams were hit. And they would go in and kill the Americans. And in fact, they got a kill an American award, and they would get they would be a national hero in North Vietnam with the commies. So they formed up over time, kept growing in size. NVA sapper, SOG hunter, killer teams, and later we learned right prior to you going that one of those units was called simply C seventy five. And during your trip there, at some point, you representing that committee met actual men who at one point were out there. Their job was to hunt you and me down to kill our ass. And you, sir, went in, had a meeting with them, and it was part of a diplomatic effort to enhance our government's ability to work, find, locate, identify, and hopefully someday bring home more of the remains, because as of today, as we speak, 1,584 Americans are still listed as MIA, and Anne will chew me out for not saying it the right way, but throughout Southeast Asia, in Thailand, Vietnam, both North and South, Laos, Cambodia, and a couple in China. And you, sir, met with those men, and that really was a major moment in time. What was it like just sitting across from those folks and then meeting them? Of course, you're talking through an interpreter most of the time, Mm -hmm. I assume. Mm -hmm. 100%. And it did have some results. And I know later, uh, Kelly McCaig, who's the DPA, whatever his title is these days, the director, had uh, said that that meeting had impacts, positive. Mm -hmm. So please, a little bit more there. There is. What was that like?
2: There is an agency, uh, part of the Defense Intelligence Agency, called Stony Beach. Indeed. And they are the single U.S. government agency tasked with gathering intelligence on our missing from the Vietnam War. They've been
1: there from day one during the war itself. Forever.
3: Yes.
2: These guys live over there. They speak language like the natives. They are trained in what they call strategic debriefing. They go all over the country, um, not interrogating, uh, interviewing uh, villagers. Following leads. Yeah. They go to uh, reunions of NVA units, divisions, whatever. They go to... Uh, museums and look at all the artifacts and displays and everything, read newspapers magazines. These guys are absolutely amazing. And then the Defense POWMIA accounting agency has people doing something similar to that. And so these two groups of US government people, they found out about C 75. And uh, they've been looking for all the sapper units, but they clearly identified C-75. So they went to the Vietnamese uh, counterpart to DPAA, is called the Vietnamese Office for Seeking Missing Persons. And the director of that office set up our meeting. And he had a company commander, a platoon leader, a squad leader, and a soldier. Really? From C-75. So it's interesting to hear the perspectives from all those different levels of command. They would not admit to being SOG uh, hunter killer teams. They said their mission was to defend the trail against anyone who would approach and threaten the trail. Well, <laughs> do you know of anyone else approaching and threatening the trail except SOG? <laughs> they chuckled when I yeah, yeah. asked that. Um, <laughs> found some interesting things. I always thought that they had LZ watchers. LZ is a landing zone where a team could uh, set their helicopter down or rappel or something. And I thought, my God, how many people must they have to watch every LZ out there? They had something like our uh, forest fire spotting towers. Towers. They would build bamboo platforms up in tall trees on high terrain that could see a lot of LZs. And they had comms back to C-75 headquarters. And they said, a team is going in they're going into an area we don't give a hoot about and they would maybe leave that team alone but if we were going somewhere which was usual to find a pipeline or tap a comma wire or something then they would send us out send their people out to get us Um, i asked them about dogs which we know they used. they claim no they didn't use dogs. (laughs) there were some dogs in the area that were used for hunting they said indeed yeah (laughs) uh i i'm trying to remember uh i couldn't find my copy of that report i need to get a copy from you you said you still have my trip report
1: oh i have to go uh we'll talk about that after you
2: can send it later yeah (laughs) i can't believe i can't find that but uh many interesting lessons learned and how i i took a when i was at ccs my team had killed a NVA commo signals officer, I guess, lieutenant. Mm -hmm. And I had his two red tabs of his branch and his rank. So I put those in a shadow box with uh, SOA coin and SFA coin. And so I gave that to the company commander. Uh, They really appreciated it. They said uh, there was good humor throughout the whole thing. Uh, I've gotten some Small amount of feedback from members who didn't like me uh, consorting with the enemy. But uh, I tell them the same thing I told the Laotian Veterans Organization I met and C75 and VNO-SMP. You know, during war, it's not personal. You're out there because your government sent you out there, and you're trying to protect your own life, but you're trying to accomplish a military mission you've assigned. Indeed. And we have to admire and respect the enemy that's doing the same thing. And I did during the war.
1: A tenacious enemy. I you bet. had to.
2: Yeah. Um Now, admittedly, I didn't work in areas where the Viet Cong were murdering whole villages of men. I didn't see atrocities. I saw armed units maneuvering against each other. And I said, once the war is over, that goes away, that enmity, which is not personal to begin with. Right. And we admire and respect what you guys did. And. We also have empathy for the people you lost and the people still missing. And that's why I'm here, is to communicate with you about we're trying to find our missing. And so if there's anybody who has any information, could you please give it to these guys? They had DPAA and uh, Stony Beach in the the meeting. Then, the thing that people really didn't like, because I put some pictures in the after-action report... (laughs) Colonel High, who's a wonderful man and commands their office for seeking missing persons, took us out for lunch. It was unbelievable—big uh, barbecued prawns and just good food. And we're all sitting around laughing. And so they brought out the rice uh, whiskey. Ooh. Thank God it was lower proof content, and we must have had 50 toast. I'm glad you didn't die, I'm glad I didn't kill you. you know. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but with good humor. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. it was a, a very positive experience for me, and I think for the U.S. government. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Kelly
1: McCaig has said that that effort was um, positive, and that uh, today, now that after the uh, COVID virus that stopped all operations last year, now they're kicking them back into gear again. question to be how many, but at least they're doing it. And at this point in time, um, everyone who's familiar with this issue for the last 50 years says that um, the Vietnamese and the communists are working and cooperating more with the U.S. than any time in history.
2: Yeah. Um- and during the COVID shutdown of the joint field activities US led, the Vietnamese continued to have field activities and they found remains of our people. Oh I didn't know that. Yeah. Any more I, no on identifications. That? And I right. say our people. Sure. It could be camel bones, I don't know. But they found remains in our absence, out looking to help us. Sure.
1: Yeah. Oh no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're at that point in time, sir. We're kind of closing, coming to the closing roundup up here. Um, any, any final thoughts from your days, your time? Uh, of course, you grew up as a military brat traveling with your dad, and you said, I'm never going to join the military. No and way. As it turns
2: out. <laughs> but you know what? When I was in college, I don't know what I was thinking. I just took courses I was interested in. They didn't prepare me to do any <laughs> career. What the heck, you know? So I had to take two years of ROTC. It was mandatory. Uh-huh. And I said, that's the end of it. That's the last. But then Vietnam was really heating, heating up, up. Sure. And I knew the difference in an O-1 and an E-1. <laughs> so I took two more years of ROTC. Right. And I came in, and I hated the mech infantry. Yeah, I never would have been there past my uh, three-year commitment. <laughs> uh, but when I got to SF, I was home. Indeed. Because of the people. Oh, yeah. You said any final thoughts? Yes, please. Thank God for the people that I met and served with.
1: Amen. I'll s- final salute to them all. Yeah. And, of course, we mentioned Jim Butler earlier. He just passed away a couple of days ago. Yeah just a sad, sad note, a fearless recon man, with uh, served at least two tours of duty in SOG, ran some incredible missions, yeah. and was our leader with the SOA. Um, so last wrap-up thought before we go into our final closing, sir.
2: Thank you for what you're doing to keep the history alive. Your books are terrific, and you've inspired Dave Maurer and Nick Brockhausen, and uh, um, just fabulous authors, never knew uh, you guys had it in you. <laughs> I'm going to have to report you for keeping notes uh, that we were not allowed to keep. (laughs) But thank you, Tony.
1: No, a pleasure. We're we're honored to have you today. Thanks for taking the time to come out. Yes, sir. And uh, we want to thank to all our veterans out there, men like Mike, who have fought for the ideals of our country. Truly, you, sir, are an American hero in our eyes. And to those of you out there on the front lines today, We thank you for fighting all for our our ideals today under most difficult circumstances. We also thank, as always, all of our military, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, Coast Guard, and yes, the Space Force now. And we also thank the police, law enforcement, Border Patrol, the uh, Secret Service, dispatchers, paramedics, folks that are out there. And last but not least, an, an issue that is close to the hearts of every SOG man, for those who didn't come home. A final salute to you, and we thank you for your service. Till next time. So we're, we're back for our post-interview um, summary review of the yet another um, very deep and personal interview. We wanna thank Mike Taylor for coming out today. And so, Tom, a t- top secret man here, <laughs> we can't reveal your identity, but what was your impression for the first time uh, to see and hear Mike's stories? And of course, another insight into SOG from a different perspective.
4: Yes, I always wondered what it was like to be that, that Covey rider or nail rider, um, that FACA, right? <clears throat> Excuse me, up at you know, altitude looking over and you know it's really insightful, um, as to what it looks like from altitude looking down and what goes into it. Um, you know, the different platforms that they flew on or uh, in and, you know, just the courage that they took as well. I mean, being up there because you're completely exposed. I mean, there's no. it's like I can hide behind a tree. Yeah, no.
1: <laughs> yeah. And no. then the NVA kept coming down with more of the anti-aircraft and particularly back when they had the O2s. I mean, those was just slow movers. Right. And... For us on the ground, it was critical to have the combo. They would come out, you see them flying around, and it's like, Oh, what took you so long to get here? Being critical <laughs> as opposed to, hey, thanks, you're here. Yeah. Let's get on with the story.
4: Well, of course you're on the ground. <laughs> At that moment you're like, please get here quick, please get here yeah, quick. Yeah. But it's uh...
1: But when they got there, they brought their friends with them.
4: And then when they and then when they switched to the O tens. Right. O oh, ten. Yeah. And now they have the capability not just to hey you know, come over here and shoot there, but now they can inflict damage, and thanks to Mike Taylor for that. Oh know, yeah, bringing that in, you know, and and being the, you know, spearheading that and and bringing it forward and bringing that out, um, because that, I'm sure for you guys that's on the ground well, was like me, this is like awesome day and night because
1: you know during my 19 months it wasn't until like month 17 that we had the first time with a Novi 10 actually come in with rockets. And I forget, I don't know if he had the HE, but he still came in and made rocket runs. Well, you know, the uh, O2s could barely get off the ground with two men in them. So what was that like on the ground?
4: What was that like the first time? You're sitting there on the ground. You're obviously, at that point, you're troops in contact right then. Yeah. And you see Covey fly in, and you're like, okay, good. Well, now we know they're here. Now I know airplanes are coming in. And all of a sudden, he makes a gun run.
1: Well, yeah. Well, it was first, it was... He was whoever this pilot was was really cool. He came up on the uh, on the uh, emergency frequency. We linked up. We're talking. He and he came by. So we hit him with the mirror. Connect quickly. He goes, "Where's your closest threat?" And I go, "Give him the locations that are south, could we made contact going downhill and mm-hmm. came back to a little plateau." And he goes, "Okay, I'm gonna make a gun run or, or a uh, a rocket run." I go, "Say again." <laughs> Repeat, I am I. Last transmission. Could you repeat that one more time? He says, um, "I've got, a, I got rockets here, and so I'll make gun runs." Okay, do it. Let's do it here. So we we made it like gave him the coordinates, point where to yep. go, and etc. He came in and did it. Wow! And it was like, whoa. This is nice, a nice yeah. new tool in our toolbox. I hope we always get OV 10s from here on.
4: So, that's probably like a current, you know, more of a current time frame. You think about those guys, uh, A 10 pilots. Now, oh, yeah. It's, it's the same thing. I mean, that's a, you know, that was an SF guy in, in a plane that's helping coordinate between the two. Yeah. And A 10 pilots, you're, you know, uh, talking with some of them, it's like they're like the infantry of the air. They're the guys that understand the battle space. They understand the ground. And they do such a wonderful job. You know, they save so many lives. They're like the modern
1: day version of the A 1. Yeah. The only airplane that was built around a weapon system. The 30 Mike Mike Literally
4: just built around a gun. Like, here's your gun, build the plane.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Now go kill bad guys. They're trying to kill our people. Yeah. Imagine if you had had
4: that back then. Oh. I mean, imagine. I mean,. You think about that now, and it's well, like, wow, I wish we'd had some of this stuff.
1: But well, you know, when a SPAD made a gun run with 4.50 calibers roaring at yeah. once, or the 20 Mike mics, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> it got your. And like Mike said, those A1s could just stay on station. Yeah. Make gun run after gun run, bombing runs, then come down with some CBU. And of course, my favorite is Crispy Critter time. Yeah. When they would they come in with the napalm. Napalm, yeah. Oh, my God. Can't Absolutely. use that anymore.
4: but no. it's, <laughs> it's, it's still out there. Um, one thing I'll say is this. You know, there's not a whole lot of officers that typically gain a lot of respect from enlisted. There's, You know, it's typically kind of one of those things where it's officer, enlisted. There's also a separation. Now. Yes. And it's, it's really hard for enlisted guys to have respect for people that don't do what you do as an enlisted guy. But right. back then, things were different, you know. Uh, Mike is one of those. Dick Thompson's another one. Oh, you know, God. I like mean, the people he went through, like Gary Robb. Gary Robb, yeah. yeah he ran all and did by himself. And you, you look at those guys, and that, to me, is what they need to take back in these ROTC, the academy. These are the guys they need to show the leadership how to be leaders because that's leading. You know, that's that's true leading, whether it's a, an NCO or a— an officer that's leading you're you lead from the front you don't lead from a desk
1: your yeah, higher headquarters are in the and the commanding control yeah. helicopter that's five clicks away and putting hey, himself in for dfc's
4: i'll say this, he's pretty courageous because he uh he doesn't mind saying his opinion to those above him some of us also have a issue with that but it's a, yeah it's always it's a breath of fresh air to see someone that was doing that back then too, you know, like that, that's still, that was still like you had people that were, this isn't right. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to risk my, my life or the lives of those around me because you want me to do something that makes no tactical sense. And it's good to see that there's a lot of those leaders that are out there that have that good tactical sense to say, that's not smart. You're not here. You're at a desk. Oh yeah. So, Oh yeah. yeah great stories I mean phenomenal Um, he wears it you know like I uh, I was saying in between like he wears it on his sleeve and most of you guys do and and rightfully so Uh, because it's not just a pilot as he said it's not just a pilot that went down oh no that's a person and it's someone he knew you know it's names it's that's, yeah. that's what people don't get they just read a book or something they're like oh pilot went down okay yeah
1: because when you're in stateside military there's the inter-service rivalries that go on yeah which is all part of the fun and games and sometimes erupts in fist fights but yep. <laughs> once you're across the fence it's different it's us versus them yeah and you, our hearts went out to those guys that supported us yeah and uh yeah sometimes with uh, horrific losses definitely and uh Mike uh, covered some of those today with a really a deeper insight than we've had anything with our first eight podcasts.
4: Yeah, and then his work with you know the POWs and and going back over there with DPA and trying to oh yeah to this day you know, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know if I could have done that. That's that's amazing. And, you know, yeah. if there's ever a time that I could help out with that, I definitely would. It's it's one of those organizations that you look at this and there's you know you think about it from people here, it's like hey, there's uh you know a missing child and your heart goes out to them but it's like hey these these are these are children too you yeah, know man. they were someone's children and their parents never got to see them again or their brothers never got to see them or their sisters or their spouse and it's like they're still there let's find them let's bring yeah, them home
1: we, like with robin owen that's my yeah. personal case where he's a one one on idaho that disappears still amongst the 50 and and when he left he hissed like across the country sent the money home to his wife and said, I'll be back. He left May 1st and 20 days later, he's MIA. Yeah. Because he didn't have to... So it's one of many names. Yeah. So anyways, any other last thoughts there? And uh, if not, we will close. We thank Jocko Willink Productions for making these possible, for helping us to bring together people to talk about more of our SOG history as time goes on. And yes, we still salute all of our service members the first line people that are online today from our Secret Service, Border Patrol. Every agency is out there defending our country. We thank you all today. Till next time. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th.